Well, that is our prayer now, Father, as we take our Bibles and open them with anticipation that you use your word to speak to us, that you would indeed search us and know us today and put us on trial and that you would cleanse us. Use your word to scour and clean us, Lord, and to challenge us and to encourage us and to build us up because we are weak people. And we are stammering, struggling people. And we need your Holy Spirit to strengthen us, and we need your word to guide us. And we need the fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ to stand beside us, that we would stand strong together to live out the claims of Jesus Christ in our lives today. Thank you for the marvelous testimony of this young man, Joseph, that we will read about again today in our Bibles. And thank you for how you use stories like this to teach us and to grow us and to help us conform to the image of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray with thanksgiving today and grateful hearts. Amen. Well, I have to tell you that um, as I've been working on this message this week, I've been thinking about a great American who has come to my mind, and his name is Jed Clampett. Do you remember Jed Clampett? It's been interesting how it parallels where we are in our story of Joseph today. You see, it's a rags-to-riches story that we're into now on the timeline of Joseph's life. You remember Jed Clampett, don't you? Poor mountaineer, barely kept his family fed, right? Then one day he was shooting at some food, and right up through the ground come a bubbling crude. And I was thinking about that old man, Jed Clampett. Concerned that day he was to feed his family, a poor, raggedy old bunch. Kids were probably sick, probably had a skinny, sick cow, trying to be really careful as he aimed his rifle at some food that he not waste the powder and the lead. The man had nothing. And then all of a sudden... Think about it. All of a sudden, when that crude comes a-bubbling up, he had no idea how wealthy he had just become. And you remember, he figured it out. Probably the local government agent came and explained it to him. So he loaded up the family and he headed off to Beverly, right? Hills, that is. Movie stars, millionaires, and what a great format for a story, wasn't it? Man had so much money, he never even knew how much money he had. Had no idea how wealthy. Couldn't calculate it all. That's a lot like in Joseph's story today. Going to have so much, they just quit, quit keeping track of it. No, got too much. Just It's there. Don't even know how much I have. Has his own banker, has his own bank secretary to track him down and remind him of his balances and so forth. Get his signature once in a while on the dotted line. Well, I invite you to turn to, Joseph, to Joseph's story in Genesis chapter 41. Because indeed, where we are in the life of Joseph this morning in Genesis 41, and we will pick it up at verse 41 of chapter 41, we are in a rags-to-riches story here. Think about how Joseph has been in prison. Joseph has been down and out, humanly speaking, 
For 13 years, you'll recall, Joseph has either been a slave or in slavery or in prison. He was 17 years old when his brothers knocked him down, threw him down in that pit, sold him to the Ishmaelite slave traders, sent him down into Egypt with, Psalm 105 says, with an iron ring around his neck. And that day, then, Potiphar found him on the slave block, bought him, sends him to his house. About 10 years go by. Remember, he's now about age 27. And that's when he... His spiritual integrity was intact and he denied the pleasures of his boss's wife that day. She makes up a story about him, ends him up in jail, in prison. And for over two years now, having done nothing wrong, based only on his own spiritual integrity, he's in prison. False accusation, an injustice that is just very dramatic. And there he's been for over 700 days. And then you'll recall last week, we talked about that day. Joseph must have awakened. He had no idea that God had been at work during the night in another man's heart and mind. And oh, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, Joseph had been working for Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's men when he was thrown in jail, approached by Potiphar's wife. But Potiphar's boss, Pharaoh, now has that dream, remember? And he wakes up and he's very vexed. He's anxious. He's stressed out. He doesn't know what to do with himself. He cannot come to conclusions as to what this dream means. And God's man, in waiting, down in the dungeon, down in a pit, according to God's plan and God's timing, come together then, according to the day when Potiphar needed help. And here comes God's man, Joseph, before Potiphar. Now stop and think about it. You can't hardly overstate the horrible conditions in which Joseph had been living in an Egyptian prison. No doubt parts of it down in the ground. No doubt difficult to keep clean. We know that they they bathed him, shaved him, and put new clothes on him. Here he is one moment, probably fighting to keep himself clean from his own excrement. He's in the midst of a horrible prison condition. And the next minute, he's cleaned up, shaven. He's standing before the king. He has no idea what God's doing in his life. And that's where we pick up the story from last week. He interpreted Pharaoh's dreams, remember? And Pharaoh and all of his court stand around, and there's young Joseph just blinking in the bright light from coming out of the dungeon and said, Sure, Elohim can answer your story here. God can tell you. And he tells them, This is what's going to happen. Seven years of fat feasting, followed by seven years. Remember the cannibalistic cows coming up, the skinny ones eating the fat ones. Then it's going to be seven years of famine. Pharaoh's listening. He's mesmerized. He recognizes immediately there's truthfulness here. Not only does he recognize the truthfulness with what Joseph is speaking, but evidently the Spirit of God is at work in this pagan king, and he immediately recognizes that this is an unusual man. He believes the story. Pharaoh believes every word of it without question. He's listening. He's nodding. His wise men stand beside him, and they're looking. Joseph goes on, remember last week, with that unsolicited remarks. And Pharaoh, not only is there going to be seven years of famine, but what you need to do, he goes on without a cue, without being asked, you need to assign an administrator, one who will go across the land, who will organize, who will support and enforce a a 20% levy on all of the grain for the next seven years, and we'll put it into silos, we'll put it into bunkers, we will will, uh, hold it for the time of need, 
Pharaoh's listening. His men are nodding. They believe the story and it becomes evident to them immediately. Here's our man. Now think about this. Hasn't been 45 minutes since he was cleaning himself up. You got to get up to Pharaoh. And within 45 minutes, Pharaoh looks at him and says, you're our man. That's where we pick up our story. Now notice the rags to riches swing. It's mind boggling. What the whirlwind of emotion that must have been going on in Joseph. Beat up, trying to trust the Lord, living faithfully for God, down in the pit. Now he's in the palace. And this is what Pharaoh says. Genesis chapter 41, begin with verse 41. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and he put it on Joseph's uh, hand. And he dressed him in robes of fine linen and he put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a, in a chariot as, he, as his second in command. And men shouted before him, Make way! And thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all of Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name zaphnath paneah and he gave him Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. And Joseph was only 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence, and he traveled throughout Egypt. And during the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain like the sand of the sea. Notice the next sentence. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh. And he said, it is because God, Elohim, has made me forget all my troubles and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim. And he said, it is because God, Elohim, has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. And the seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end, exactly as God said. And the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said. And there was a famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt there was food. And when all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. And then Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph and do what he tells you. And when the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the countries came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the, the famine was severe in all the world. What a remarkable story. What an incredible swing in this young man's life. You know, it's one thing, isn't it, to live for God and to depend upon God when the airplanes are hitting the towers, when there's no food on the pantry shelf, when it's 2 o'clock in the morning and you're on the outside of an ICU swing door and you're wondering what in the world with your loved one is happening on the inside. God... Boy, you're there, aren't you? You're dependent upon God. You're crying out to God. He's there. But isn't it another thing, and don't you know the feeling, to be faithful and to live for God when you really don't need God? Boy, that's Joseph, isn't it? He's been in the dungeon. 
God has been teaching him. We talked about eight things that surely God taught him as a spiritual leader, preparing him for this down in the dungeon last week. And this week, he doesn't really even need God. And so the premise of our message today is to examine Joseph's life and to look at Joseph in a time of plenty. Let's look at Joseph when he's on the top of the heap. Let's look at Joseph when he's got it all together and everything's right there. Not in his brokenness, not in the pit, but now in the palace. Is he going to be faithful? Oh, there's, there's something about it, isn't there? In our times of total need and dependency, how we can really get close to God. I remember a story, and I've told you this story many times, about Dr. Pipkin at our Bible College, Appalachian Bible College, where I graduated, met Janet, where I serve on the board down in Beckley. And in the early years of the school, down in, in the early 1950s, and they were poor as church mice, and they came down from the state of Minnesota, and they started this little Appalachian Bible Institute in the Appalachian region to reach poor folk that were up the hollers. And they had nothing, and they were there to teach God's Word and to start this little Bible training school. And I can remember Dr. Pipkin's wife, Mrs. Pipkin, standing before the student body, talking about God's faithfulness in the early years and how they had to depend upon God. And one day in their home, they had no food to eat. And so they got their children together, and they sat around the living room, and they got on their knees around the living room, and they prayed for God to meet their needs. Boy, you're close to God when you have nothing, aren't you? Mrs. Pipkin talked about how, and you can imagine this, can't you? How as on her knees at the sofa in their living room, as they were praying, she was just rubbing the fabric with her hand, and her hand, without any uh, sense of direction from her own self, subconsciously ended up between the cushions, just rubbing the fabric as they prayed, and as they cried out to God, and, and her hand touched a quarter down in the crack of the couch, and they were able to buy a loaf of bread, and they praised God for His provision, and you know, come up with some kind of dandelion green sandwich or something and spare starving to death that day. Oh, we, we can walk with God when we're in need. But what about, what about when we're fat with wealth? What about when we're so strong and everything's going our way? What about when we're so esteemed and, and everybody finally figured out that we've got it together? We don't need God anymore. Let's examine Joseph's life, shall we? Joseph at the top. I'm going to suggest that there were incredible points of pressure upon Joseph to not be faithful to God. That Joseph had multiple pressure points in his life. Let's take a look at them. There are going to be seven of them, seven pressure points in Joseph's dramatic and instant rise to the top. All of these picking away and trying to undermine his faithfulness to God. How would you have done if you were Joseph? It's hard to know, isn't it? I think it is safe to say, though, however, that it is difficult to find a people group and a culture that for at least the last quarter of a century or so have been wealthier and more affluent than Americans. I'm not down on that. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy. There's nothing wrong with having resource and being productive. But I would suggest that it is a more difficult time in times of feasting to really be faithful to God than it is in times of famine. Pressure point number one in Joseph's life. Let's return to our text. It's verse 41. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. 
the first thing that Joseph had to deal with in this, this immediate, instantaneous surfacing and rising to the top was unchecked political power. Unchecked political power. Think about it. I mean, he had surfaced down in the prison and he had been used by the warden to administrate the prison. Everywhere he had gone, the word is clear that God had blessed Joseph. But think about the reality. We don't know the timeline. We don't know if these sequence of events, starting in verse 41, as he stands before Pharaoh, did it take 45 minutes for all this to happen? 24 hours, maybe seven days? Regardless, it was a handful of minutes and hours that he went from being in squalor and poverty and, and no freedom, think about it, to being the second in command in the whole land. Now look at the power that is given to him. This unchecked political power includes the signet ring from the finger that he took and that Pharaoh takes and puts on Joseph's finger. You need to understand that this is the key to all the power. This is the seal of the government. This is a monarchy. This is like... Um, uh, some kind of a dictatorship. I wanted to say benevolent dictatorship, but I'll bet you Pharaoh uh, wasn't afraid to bump guys off if they didn't cooperate with him. He was in charge. He was the king. And he was there, and he was there forever until he died. And he looks at Joseph and he said, he said, I want you to understand something. Do you see that in verse 44? I want you to understand something, Joseph. I'm Pharaoh. You're not Pharaoh, okay? You're not Pharaoh, I'm Pharaoh. But without your word, no one will lift a hand or foot in all of Egypt. A figure of speech for the incredible bestowment of power upon Joseph. And putting this ring, if he were to write a command, if he were to write an instruction, if he were to give a dictum, if he were to say, this is the way it is, and lay down new rules... He writes it down, he wraps it up, drops the wax on there, seals it with the ring, and it's law. There's no Supreme Court here. There's Pharaoh's word, and Pharaoh said, whatever Joseph said goes. It's mind-boggling to think about this. You're talking about a matter of hours. From being in a dungeon to being the most, practically speaking, practically speaking, the most powerful man in the country because Pharaoh wasn't paying attention. He gave the power and turns him loose. You know the famous quote, don't you, from historian Lord Acton, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. You don't think that Joseph's immediately put in a pressure cooker world? I mean, you talk about an appeal to the flesh. You talk about your mind swimming with emotion and your heart pounding with adrenaline. You just got shaved 45 minutes ago. You just had deodorant put on for the first time in over 700 days that you've had a bath. And now the king has put his ring on your hand and you're the new man. You're there. And it's unchecked. Look what it says even in verse 55. I mean, even if that figure of speech isn't enough. I'm Pharaoh, but you're Joseph, and nobody's going to breathe in or breathe out without asking you. But look at clear back in chapter, at the end of the passage in verse 55 about this kind of political power. It says, When all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food, and then Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, 
Go to Joseph and do what he tells you to do. Practically speaking, he is the most powerful man in Egypt. What a rush. Secondly, unlimited material possession. Look what it says. And then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger. He puts it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen. He puts a gold chain around his neck. And he has him ride in a chariot as his second in command. And the men shouted before him, Make way. It doesn't say it in the text, but in the Hebrew, it says he also had the government credit card in his back pocket. It doesn't really say that in the Hebrew, but you know he did. I mean, think about this. The robes... The gold chain, second in command, he's the viceroy of the country. Not only does he have unchecked political power, but he has unlimited material possession. It's at his fingertips. Whatever he wants, he has. A few hours ago, he had nothing. Now he has everything. I heard a story about Elvis Presley one time. He had this little half-brother or something. I can't remember. The guy grew up and was a Christian. He wrote a book. In that book, that guy tells the story about when he was a little boy, like 8 or 11 years old, Elvis Presley, the peak of his, of his um, popularity and his wealth, um, shut down a, a shopping center in, I think, if I remember, like a city like Memphis or something. He shut down the shopping center so, and picked up his little brother in a limo and took him shopping and let him buy whatever he wanted to. Kicked everybody out of the shopping center. That's Joseph. You want it? You got it. Anything you have. And I have no idea how long this took to unfold, but I take it to be evidently almost immediate. Unchecked political power, unlimited material possession. And notice verse 43. He's in this chariot, and he's got these guys now shouting, Make way! So they have a parade, they have a power parade, They go up and down through the streets. He's in this chariot, the government chariot with the markings on it. He's got all the security. He's got all the soldiers. All the people come down to the sidewalk and everybody's shouting, make way for Joseph, make way for Joseph. Listen, this is not like a country with a middle class. This is like the people and this is like the rulers. There he is. He has gone from nothing. He has gone from dust to dynasty. Doesn't get any higher socially than what he has. He can go water skiing on any reservoir he wants. Make them paddle as hard as as he wants. Let's go. Unimaginable social position. You know you have arrived when you've got people running down the sidewalks ahead of you telling everybody to make way. Make way, the man is coming. What kind of pressure is this in the life of a young man? Fourthly, and I kind of think that this might be one that is as as impacting as any of these things, it is the unexpected marital partner that he comes up with here. So Pharaoh's sitting on his throne. Pharaoh starts getting the ring on him, puts the chain around his neck, puts the robe on him. And he said, another thing, you need a good wife. This guy's been sitting in prison. He's all by himself. He's a Hebrew boy from far, far away. Look what it says. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh without your word. Verse 44, no one will lift a hand or foot in all of Egypt. And Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zephanath 
Paniah and gave him Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, to be his wife. Daughter of Potipharah, that's just another form of the word Potiphar. It's a, it's a position word. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. Priest of On to be his wife. And then Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. We really don't have any details. I'm going to guess that this is uh, a beautiful woman. We do know from who her father is, that she is from the upper echelon of society in Egypt. It's a very prestigious family. We know that Pharaoh appoints this woman to be his wife. She's high society. She is also clearly pagan. Her name, her name, Asenath, means she belongs to Neith. Neith was an Egyptian goddess. It raises the question, doesn't it? about his spiritual integrity at this point. Now, some commentaries give Joseph the benefit of the doubt, and they say, surely Joseph would have, would have rejected this wife if she had not given indication that she would follow, follow Elohim with, her, with him. And I think that's nonsense. I doubt they talked before they were married. I don't think Joseph had a choice in the matter. I think that Joseph's still trying to figure which end is up, and all of a sudden he's got this wife, and it's done. Pharaoh said, that's your wife. You got a wife. We have no record historically that Joseph ever was polygamous. He evidently then was monogamous with this woman. We don't know for sure. We know from the text that he's going to have two boys. We also know that though he marries a pagan wife, who his father is a pagan priest, that he gives... His boys' Hebrew names that lift up Elohim, God. I like to think that Joseph's integrity and the kind of man he was that as they fell in love as a, as, as in a marriage, and I would assume they did, that she converted to follow the one true God, the God of Abraham, Joseph's great-grandfather. We don't know. We can only speculate. We only know what the text tells us we do know that others that Joseph had witnessed as a young boy, other brothers of his, had disobeyed God by marrying Canaanite pagan women. It's interesting, isn't it, then, that this Egyptian woman is brought into the scene and it doesn't seem to bring any condemnation from God. I take it to be just the circumstances where God had Joseph. And as it will say in Genesis 50, verse 20, that these things that man meant for evil, God meant for good, and God worked all things together for good in Joseph's life. We do know that in the, in the promised line of blessing that there are other pagan women included later on. Aren't, don't, don't we know that? Including like Rahab the harlot, for example. Ungodly women that are included in the line. Well, there he is. I take it that Joseph had to have felt some pressure, if not from this new wife of his, this unexpected marital partner. I would say that he had no idea he was going to get a wife out of the deal. That'll change your life in a hurry. But number five, we also see that there had to be unavoidable spiritual pressure, didn't there? There had to be an unavoidable spiritual pressure. His father-in-law is the priest of An. An was probably a city that later in the, in the Greek empire was named Heliopolis. Scholars think it was probably seven miles northwest of Cairo. And that he was of, this pharaoh was of Egyptian nobility. His name, this father-in-law, Potiphar, that means Potiphar. Potiphar means given by Ra, 
capital R, letter A, given by Ra, that is the sun god. They were polytheistic in Egypt at the time. They worshipped different gods. You can kind of picture, can't you, probably from television or movies or books, the frog-headed thing that comes up out of the Nile River. They worshipped that god. They worshipped the sun god Ra. And that's who he was. Not only that, Pharaoh himself, that's, that's who Joseph answers directly to, right? He considers himself deity among the people at some level. He's not just a normal human being, supposedly. Pharaoh, excuse me, Joseph is in a pressure cooker spiritually. Think about it. No one around Joseph, this is like Daniel of old, isn't it? This is years after this. But that Daniel ends up being taken up north out of captivity in the Babylonian captivity. He at least had some buddies who were with him who lived for God. You have to believe that Joseph is all alone in a pagan country. He now has essentially zero accountability from anybody else who fears God. He can do whatever he wants. He's got a pagan wife, a pagan father-in-law, a pagan king for a boss. It's a good question to ask. Did Joseph remain faithful to God in all of this? What would you have done? How would you have reacted? What are your spiritual moorings? Are the, the tent pegs of your life tent pounded in deep enough that when these kinds of winds of opportunity come, you're unmovable in your conviction? Listen, there's no record anywhere that Joseph failed God. We'll talk more about that in just a minute, but look at these pressure points now. The political power, the material possession, the social position, the marital partner that he has, the spiritual pressure of this family in which he married. We'll just comment quickly on the final two. Number number six is the unbelievable professional promotion. The unbelievable professional promotion. It says, look what it says in verse 46. Joseph was just 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He's a young man. He's a young man. He has attained everything. There's essentially no higher office in the land. It's just Pharaoh himself. You talk about at the top of your game professionally. If there's anything that can get your eyes off of God as a young man... It is this kind of success. Number seven is unparalleled international prestige. Unparalleled international prestige. We go on through the text, 46, 47. They collect all the food. We evidently, Joseph takes a survey trip almost immediately. It says in two places that he went throughout the land of Egypt. It said after he took... Asenath to be his wife in verse 45. It says Joseph went throughout the land. And then it says Joseph was 30 years old when he entered service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. Uh, Some commentaries like to think there was two trips. I don't know if that was one trip or two trips. I don't think it matters. I imagine he had dozens of trips in the next seven years. But as soon as these things came in order in his life, as a wise administrator, immediately he took some kind of a survey trip He wanted to figure out what was out there, what the fields looked like. He's been in prison. He's got to go. And so he surveys the land. He's very wise in that he assigns local administration of of the responsibilities of the harvest. They put the levy in place. 
I'm tempted to digress right now and preach about another levy that got put back in place around here, but I'll refrain. But he puts this 20% levy in place, and the grain is collected over seven years. And, and they put them in silos and storehouses, administrating them city by city so that the local people have the food right there. And the, uh, the abundance of the harvest is so great that you notice at first he evidently took scribes with him and he took bookkeepers with him and he took administrators with him and they kept track of all the land and he would report back to Pharaoh of how much the land was producing grain-wise. And finally he said, just put the books away, forget it. We can't even calculate. We don't even know how many books. We, got, we, can't, we can't count that high. Everywhere you look, the grain is just spilling out. It's unbelievable, exactly the way Joseph said when he interpreted the dream. But then look at abruptly at verse 53, what happens? And the seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end. The fat years are over, and now comes the famine. Everything's going to change. And in the middle of that, there is yet one more pressure point for Joseph. That, that's this unparalleled international prestige. Look what it says. Pharaoh says, go, go to Joseph and do whatever he tells you, the end of verse 55. But then this is in worldwide famine. That's going to highly influence the flow of the story, starting in chapter 42. And when the famine, verse 56, spread over the whole country, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold the grain to the Egyptians. So the government took it, stored it, then they sold it back to him. That's a pretty incredible system. I take it that Joseph had some level of equitability, that it wasn't just a total ripoff and that the people were happy to get the grain. In the meantime, the government of Egypt just gets richer and richer. Everything Joseph's hand touches, God blesses. They're not printing out fake paper dollar bills. And all the countries came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the world. Do you know what was leading the headline news in the evening? The famine. The famine. You know what they said to do? Every time. The famine is spreading. People are dying in Ethiopia. People are dying in Alaska. People are dying everywhere. Everywhere you go, it doesn't matter. They're starving to death. The headline name had to have been Zephanath. Go to Egypt, find Zephanath. He's the frontline guy. His name had to be a commonplace name internationally. How could it not have been? He was the one that everybody knew administrated the food source. Listen, you get the food source, you got the people. And Joseph's in charge of it all. So how faithful to God would you be in this time of feasting and wealth? Abraham Lincoln said, Nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. And Joseph has power to burn. I would like in closing to suggest that by all accounts, we only have reason to believe that Joseph remained faithful to God. And I'd like to suggest three reasons why I think that. I want you to test yourself through this. At some level, we all are tested in these ways. How do we know that Joseph lived a committed and uncompromising life? How do we know that in the midst of plenty, that Joseph lived a committed, uncompromising life? Here are some clues. Number one, he never wavered from God's plan for his life. He never wavered from God's plan. 
He didn't always know what God was doing, but when he stood before Pharaoh, he himself explained what God was going to do, and he himself is the one who explained to Pharaoh what the wisdom of God told him to do. This is the plan, Pharaoh. And nowhere in the story do we see Joseph getting sidetracked or digressing to build monuments to himself. Evidently, always Joseph had in perspective that which was to come. And he worked hard for seven years. He did the plan of God. I'd like to have a $10 bill for every kid I know that I went to Bible college with who was called of God and then got a job and the calling of God dropped off their life. Because they bought a car, then they got to make a car payment, then they got engaged to a girl, and they got to buy a $2,000, $4,000 diamond, and then they got to this, and then the baby's coming, and then we're going to serve God next week. And the call of God was on their life, and they were clear, and God had a plan, and the next thing you know, they looked just like everybody else. And I tell you, if Joseph, if Joseph had an excuse to be like everybody else, there it was, wasn't it? He had the pressure on him, and he never wavered from the plan of God for his life. How committed are you to the plan of God for your life? How easily distracted are you from what God wants to accomplish in your life? Secondly, he was motivated by God's word. Not only did he not waver from the plan of God, but he was motivated by God's word. And here's what I was thinking about on this. And I think this is a good test for all of us. When Joseph was standing before Potiphar, and there's old uh, um, Pharaoh. When Joseph was standing before Pharaoh, and there he is, and Joseph explains the dream, and all the guys are standing around. When Joseph spoke, he spoke the word of God in essence. He spoke what God said was going to happen. Pharaoh wasn't in charge. God was in charge. And Joseph told Pharaoh, this is what's going to happen. This is the word of God. And I was thinking about the fact that when he tells him seven fat years are coming, but then there's seven years of famine, this was a word of warning from God, wasn't it? God was warning them that there's another day coming and it's not going to be like today and you better get ready for that day. And Joseph believed every word of it. And evidently, Pharaoh did too. And I've found in my experience in Christian leadership that there is a difference between people who say they love God and really walk in obedience and people who say they love God. And you can find this difference tested at this crossroad, the crossroad of the warning passages of our Bible. Do you know that our Bibles are filled with warning words from God? Don't do this. Abstain from this. Do this. Don't do that. And how many people I know say they're followers of God, but they capitulate to the pleasures of the flesh, the pressures of the world, the desires of the heart, humanly speaking, and they disregard the warning passages in God's word. I was thinking about a text, we won't turn there, but say like 2 Peter chapter 3. You know what it says in 2 Peter chapter 3? It doesn't get any clearer. It says, just like God sent flood water and flooded the earth, God is going to take fire one day and melt the surface of the earth as though it were wax. 
And in fact, the only reason he doesn't do it now is so that people will come to repentance and get right with God. I'm giving you a warning. I'm giving you seven years warning. You need to know that this is going to happen. And I think it's a great test of somebody's integrity and belief of the Word of God, whether or not they really believe the warning passage of the Word of God, or if they say, oh, I don't, you don't know if it means that. Or God said this, but you know, you don't know how I really feel about this. It really makes me feel good, and, and it really makes me feel good about myself to do it. But God said, don't do it. And I take it that Joseph, from the time he delivered the warning passage to, to Pharaoh, never wavered once. And he knew that on the first day of the eighth year, the famine was going to begin, and you had well better be ready for it. He didn't play around, he didn't goof around, and that, to me, speaks of his commitment to the, his faithfulness to God in the midst of all these other pressures. The overriding, consuming thought on Joseph's mind when he woke up in the morning and flipped open his iPod and looked at his com- computer and his calendar was, we're one day closer. The famine is coming. And God said it, and it's going to happen. Let me ask you, are you paying any attention to what God says is going to happen? It's always interesting to me how people believe that Jesus was born of a Mary, laid in a real manger with real donkeys and sheep around, and, and that there were real wise men, and that the Bible means everything it says about the first coming of Christ. But then when you come to the second coming passages of Christ, you don't know what it means. It doesn't necessarily mean that God's going to do this. And you don't know if that's real fire. And you don't know if there's everything. And you don't know about this. I'm telling you, God said, He's coming again. Are you ready? He said, nobody knows when. He said, you're going to have to stand before Him and give an account. Do you care? Or are you off just getting another bass boat or something? See, Joseph had every opportunity to be distracted, but he believed the word of God. I don't think he wavered one iota. Finally, I think particularly, and I won't build upon this, the third reason that I think he didn't waver in his belief for God, not only did he stick to the plan of God, not only was he humbled by the word of God and the warning of God, but number three, he was not ashamed of the name of God. He was not ashamed of the name of God. Listen, if he had capitulated to all of the pressure and the popularity and the political power and all the possessions, you get embarrassed about Jesus in the middle of all that. I know we're Old Testament. But when he has boys born in his house, you know whose name he lifts up? The name of the God of his father Abraham. He announces through their names that this is who they are. That God is in control and I have no bitterness. That's Manasseh. That God has been faithful to me in my sufferings. That's Ephraim. You want to know what his core beliefs were? Just do a word study on the names of his boys. He was not embarrassed to be a Hebrew in an Egyptian culture. It's interesting, isn't it? It's always a test of our faithfulness 
whether or not we will be identified with the name of Jesus in certain settings, especially when they're with popular people and political people and powerful people and prestigious people, because we're a little bit worried, aren't we? You're one of those Jesus people. Listen, if I'm not one of the Jesus people, I don't know who I am. I can remember on the final spring concert of our symphonic band at Vicksburg High School, and I played the trumpet. Red and white, fight, fight, go Bulldogs. And the seniors had to stand up, and the whole gymnasium auditorium was packed with people, and the seniors had to stand and say where they were going to college the next year, and everybody would clap. And this was Kalamazoo, Michigan. I'm going to Michigan State University. I'm going to Kalamazoo College. I'm going to this and that. And when I stood up, I said, I'm going to Abilene. I remember really trying to think of another way to say I was going to Appalachian Bible College in pastoral studies. We were supposed to say what we were going to major in. What is it about that? What is it about the name of Christ? What is it about our identity with him that tests us? And I take it that Joseph had no problem with that. He was like Daniel. He was like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Everybody's going to bow down. I'm not bowing down. I'll throw you in the fire. Throw me in the fire. This is who I am. This is who Joseph was, right? Listen, I really think that the American church, and I'm not down on wealth and affluence at all. We're going to talk more about this next week, I think. But I do think that it is true that when our wallets are fat and our bellies are fat, and our bank accounts, you know, pretty much don't bother us, that it's really, really hard to be as faithful to God as we're supposed to be. We kind of think we have the world by the tail. We become really spiritually vulnerable at times like that. Will you hold up Joseph as a model in your life? Will you continue to let the Spirit of God use Joseph as sort of the straight edge? And will you put your life up against Joseph's and examine yourself in all of those areas? If all of these pressure points come in on you, are you capitulating? Are you faithful to God in the middle of it all? I don't know God's plan for your life. I don't know what all God's doing. I just know that it's pretty easy to follow the flesh and to be pressed into the mold of the world and to be filled with the pride of life and for God to become a little God to us in the times of feasting. Let's bow in prayer. So, Father, will you search us, please? Test us and try us. Let your word root around and may we ponder more the imagery and the story of the life of Joseph Father, we will be tested and we have been tested and are being tested. Help us to come through as gold. Help us to be faithful to you in the rich times, just like we cry out to you and are faithful to walk with you in the lean times. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.